Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Previously on Monster on the Beach. We would go into a house or, you know, where we were doing a search warrant or just even sitting in the, in the uh, narcotics um, uh, headquarters there, and we would, we would talk about, this is the worst thing we've ever seen, you know. Um, sadly, we were wrong because uh, we've now come into a time where for the past five years, heroin and opioid um, abuse is the worst thing we've ever seen. Whatever you say about a person who is distributing drugs on a street corner, they tend to be fueling an existing problem. They tend to be servicing existing addicts. Whereas a doctor who is giving out drugs too recklessly, too freely, too casually, is often creating new addicts where none existed before. When John Matthew Gaydon closed his clinic in 2011 and relinquished his license for good in 2015, he was totally unaware that all during 2011, several law enforcement agencies, including the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, the Drug Enforcement Administration, the Brevard County Sheriff's Office, and Melbourne Police, had been working together to build a drug trafficking case against the once-respected doctor. They examined patient records confiscated during the raid of his office to see what kind of, if any, medical records were being kept on patients. They had recruited former and current patients to go in and see Gaydon while wearing a wire and a hidden camera. They even asked Melbourne teen Corey Ann Lundstrom if she would consider an undercover visit despite being banned from Gaydon's office. Here she is talking with police about how her boyfriend's prescriptions were found by the police in North Carolina and about why Gaydon dropped her as a patient. But they found his papers in the car. So the police station called Gaydon's office and told him that his papers were in the car. They figured that, I guess, you know, they were his prescriptions. And since it were his prescriptions, they dropped me too because I was his girlfriend. And if he's selling them, they figure I'm selling them. So they dropped, they, um, they dropped me but they put it in as, you know, not, because I was close with the people, they put it in as not like a bad mm-hmm. thing. Sorry, it's been a while. I don't really no, remember all, all right. the terms, but. So have you tried to go back? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think there's a possibility that, you know, if you call them and say, I need an appointment, they'd take you? But agents and detectives were still looking for one patient that might be able to tie everything together. Just two days short of her 46th birthday, a satellite beach woman swallowed a handful of Oxycontin painkillers. She left behind a note saying goodbye. The woman, a patient of Gaydon's, said she did not want to go through the terrible detox of quitting opiates, and she could no longer afford to pay for the monthly cash fees that Gaydon charged. She said she was simply taking Oxycontin at that point to stave off withdrawals. She woke up in the hospital after being in a coma and attached to a ventilator. A few days after being released from the hospital, she was approached by police. 
They knew she had received drugs from Gaiden and wanted to know if she would help them lock up the man whose prescription pad caused her to attempt suicide. She agreed. Here's FDLE's Jason Kriegsman. So there was a combination of different investigative techniques we used between surveillance, document analysis. We worked closely with the Florida Department of Health um, because they were looking at uh, a lot of administrative sanctions on him as well. So it was kind of a multi-pronged approach. We worked with uh, Melbourne PD, DEA, uh, Brevard County Sheriff's Office, and um, like I said, the DOH. So after doing... um, surveillance and getting our all our preliminary information together we um, cultivated a confidential source that was a patient of Gaydon's that um, came forward and decided to give us a, a full interview of basically their um, interaction and dealings with Gaydon and how he had got them hooked on oxycodone and pain medicines to the point where they were like suicidal this person was just interested, you know, there's a number, co- confidential sources often either are working off charges and trying to reduce their sentence or they're working for money or they, you know, a host of reasons. This person uh, wanted to see Gaydon um, stop prescribing these uh, pain pills and oxy to all these people and getting them hooked. That was their main reason. So they came forward, told us their experience, and was willing to cooperate in our active investigation. And by what I mean cooperate is go into his office in an undercover capacity for us. So the woman wears a wire to Gaydon's office that August after having missed her June and July appointments because she was in the hospital. Gaydon says nothing about her absence. He doesn't ask her where she's been. He doesn't ask her if she's been taking painkillers or getting them from somewhere else or anything. In fact, the woman tells Gaydon that she's fine and doing much better. She even, at the urging of the police, circles the zero on the pain level chart of zero to ten, with ten being excruciating pain. She would circle zero on her next two visits as well, and would tell Gaydon that she was continuing to do much better. Why would someone continue prescribing massive amounts of Oxycontin to someone suffering no pain? Well, in this case, that's always been the million-dollar question. There was no doubt, at least according to law enforcement, that Gaydon was a big spender. He gave one 17-year-old girl a $100,000 Tiffany ring, and there were also multiple hotel rooms rented for months at a time, large marijuana purchases, and other expensive items. Was this, as one of his underage victims described to me, Simply about greed? It's just what you touched on is that it just got easier over time. And it was just something that it was it was a moneymaker. You know, that's all he saw. He just he didn't care about the lives that he was ruining. All he cared about was, you know, how much money can he put in his pocket? And I'm sure at some point he knew the end was probably going to catch It was going to catch up to him in the end. So he might as well pocket and, and, and make as much as he could before, you know, the, the train came off the track, so yeah. to speak. That was Indy Atlantic Police Chief Mike Connor. Here's Jason Kriegsman trying to figure it out as well. I've heard I've heard both what you said. I, you know, his doc, his dad was a, a well-respected doctor in Brevard, and yet from all accounts, when he he was what I heard a good doctor originally, and you know, I think he went down that path. Um, maybe I don't know if it was his son overdosing or the personal stuff, or he had some 
deviant behavior that just led him to it. You know, when you're looking in, in that much money, too, I mean, I know doctors do well, but when you're looking at 50000 a week cash money coming in for basically just writing prescriptions, um, it's just like print, printing money. Gaydon's prescription pad was indeed a printing press, one that would roll out $100 bills at a time. Now, while he was a big spender, law enforcement agents were puzzled that they could not find bank accounts or large amounts of cash, leading some to speculate that he had offshore accounts. So anyway, after losing his license, the man who was reportedly earning $50,000 a week in cash for several years was now supposedly broke and taking odd jobs in the area. It's crazy because after we arrested him and he was out, um, people would tell me, hey, I saw Gaydon um, holding a sign at Firehouse Subs on the corner. And I was like, get out of here. And uh, True verified he was uh, one of those guys holding the sign or he um, he was also working at uh, like selling car wax at like gas when someone pulls up a gas station trying to sell like a can of car wax where he would show he was doing those trying to so because there was always a rumor because we we never really could find all that cash and you know there's rumors that you know he had offshore accounts this that but I I believe he didn't have a penny um, especially kind of confirmed when he was doing those things at the end wait so Gaiden is out there spinning signs and selling car wax? I mean, I know his world had collapsed and he was disgraced, but just a quick search on Google shows plenty of jobs for doctors who have been in trouble, like consulting for medical insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry. Did he really have to spin signs to make a living? Well, it depends who you ask. Bryn Brito, his attorney on the sex and marijuana case, says she believes he was flat broke. He was really kind of penniless by that point. Um, I believe he made it through his probation, his, his state probation. He was done with probation. He was a great probationer. He did wonderfully on probation. Mm. Um, you know, he was, um, but it was a tragic story by that point. You know, his mother died. He, he really had no money. Um, he sort of was this once very powerful, brilliant, you know, person that people refer to or or sought for advice or medical, you know, care. And I don't think that he really was there anymore where he even had a, a job. I feel like he might have been just delivering something for people. I don't even know. I, I know that it was a, a very sad fall for grief. If you look, he even had like a worthless check charge. Let me see. I mean, there's tons of foreclosures on him. In 2018, he had a, a painting of property by a worthless check over $150. Hey, if you like what we do here at Murder on the Space Coast, then help us continue our work. Please consider subscribing to Florida Today newspaper. You'll be surprised to learn that our digital subscriptions cost about the same as one premium cup of coffee a month. Just go to floridatoday.com backslash subscribe. The hammer finally came down on John Matthew Gaden on September 28, 2016, when he was indicted on federal charges just before the five-year statute of limitations expired. He was charged with dispensing the narcotic oxycodone outside the usual course of professional practice and for no legitimate medical reason. Now, you might be wondering, as I certainly have, as to why on earth it took law enforcement and prosecutors five years to levy these charges on Gaydon. Well, there are a few things at play here. First, according to several people I've interviewed, the goal all along was to try to get Gaydon on the pill charges. 
but even more important was to simply stop him from prescribing pills and shut his clinic down. The marijuana arrests and sex charges were enough to do that, but he avoided serious convictions and remained free. Other people I've interviewed compared this to how Al Capone was finally brought down. Once again, here is Brevard County Sheriff Wayne Ivey. All of those presented some pretty significant roadblocks for us. And then, of course, you know, in the end, it wasn't that that got him. It was it, it was the underage girls that that uh, end up. And I always call that um, when we when we set that into motion. As I said, I was still with FDLE then, and and was the supervisor of the the team that was working. But when we set that in motion, I call that the uh, Al Capone um, effect. You know, they went after Al Capone for how many years, and he ended up getting him on tax evasion. So it's the same thing. Uh, his his downfall wasn't really the death he was peddling. It it was the the underage girls. The underage girls and the marijuana helped shut him down, but he still needed to answer for the pills. So the second reason it may have taken so long was that there was apparently a turnover at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and so new people needed to be brought up to speed on the case. And thirdly, I've alluded to this before, but it is really hard to bring a criminal case against a doctor. Here again is federal prosecutor Dana Hill out of Orlando, whose office brought the charges against Gaiden. Essentially, you know, the big three things that, that come into play is doctors really should be doing, which is they should be looking at prior medical records to actually diagnose the ailment involved, and then trying things that are not opioids, making doing everything they can without opioids, uh, but also at the same time being attuned to the risk of prescribing opioids, which is, of course, that you might lead, lead to have the patient have, have substance abuse disorder, one of the doctors I worked with in one of my cases explained to me that there's really two conditions when you're dealing with somebody with chronic pain. One is the actual chronic pain involved, and the other is substance abuse disorder. And what you will see when you see a doctor who is just giving away pills is they're treating one ailment, but they're ignoring the other. And he said, that's not medicine. Medical doctors who are practicing real medicine are attuned to both conditions. And they're trying to treat one while not causing another chronic ailment, which is substance abuse disorder. What you're likely to see when you see a doctor who is acting outside of the usual course of professional practice is one who is just giving out pills without any concern for the risks posed, which is hooking someone as an addict or making them um, dependent um, or addicted um, or risk having them become addicted to or have a you know, substance abuse disorder. So they say the wheels of justice move slowly, and they are not kidding. In June 2018, Gaydon finally went to trial on charges of dispensing the narcotic oxycodone outside the usual course of professional practice and for no legitimate medical reason. Remember Corianne Lundstrom, the Melbourne teenager from earlier? She started seeing Gaydon and got hooked on oxycodones before working with the police. When I went to Gaydon, I would do 10 a day, 8 a day. 10, 30s a day? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I actually just got a bunch of um, dental work done, and they had to do so much extra Novocaine in it. And he was like, what were you, you know, he's like, what are you on, you know, pain pills? I was like, well, I used to be very high tolerance right now. Right. Okay. They give me shot. No, it's okay. They have to give me shots in my molars and stuff to actually make it not hurt. It sucks. Sadly, Corianne met the same fate as many of Gaydon's other patients. 
She wound up overdosing and dying in 2014 while in Jacksonville. Her name was brought up at trial by the prosecution as one of the many deaths that Gaydon helped to bring about. Deaths that he could never be charged with, just like Skippy Hyatt from episode one, the man who was shot to death for the few pills in his pocket, or the overdose deaths we heard about from Chief Connor in Indy Atlantic of Stuart Fraser and Nicholas Giles, also patients of Gaydon's. The list of carnage and chaos goes on and on. Gaydon and his defense did not deny the charges, nor did they make excuses for what Gaydon did. Instead, they offered a very interesting theory as to why things happened the way they did. They admitted he was a flawed doctor and a flawed man, but they also claimed he was impaired. They brought in an expert, neuropsychologist Robert Cohen from Orlando, to examine Gaydon on several occasions. And he testified that Gaydon suffered from something known as behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia. I'll explain more about what that is in a second. I spoke to Dr. Cohen and he really wanted to come on the podcast and share his findings. But because of strict HIPAA laws, he can only do so with Gaydon's permission. But since his testimony at Gaydon's trial is public record, I can tell you exactly what he said. Cohen described the disease as being slow-moving and insidious and typically starts with a personality change for a person in their 50s or 60s. Cohen said Gaydon's strange behavior can be traced to 2005, where there were several documented incidents that seemed out of the blue, including a neglect of hospital responsibilities, not checking patients, not talking with his colleagues, missing numerous meetings, and offering the same excuses over and over again. It was also the start of a sense of general apathy. Quoting now from his trial transcript. Around the year of 2005-2006, a lot of the records that I've reviewed indicate a lot of hospital intervention. Other doctors getting involved, making these allegations. 2007, we see a lot of other life changes at that time. But those, at least many of his behaviors, started before any situational problems occurred in his life. Close quote. Cohen went on to say that Gaydon's IQ was significantly lower than your average doctor. It was in the mildly impaired stage. And he added that several other tests of executive function of the frontal lobe and temporal lobe were both well below expectation. Cohen said one of the more troubling tests was in Gaydon's ability or inability to generate words. For example, he was given one minute to list as many words as he could that began with the letter F. He managed five. Now, I know what you're probably thinking. Someone putting on a defense like this would score poorly on purpose, right? Well, at least according to Cohen, that's impossible. He said the tests have built-in safeguards to catch people that might be faking it in order to achieve a certain diagnosis. So after the tests... Cohen ordered a PET scan, positron emission tomography, which basically shows us how well the brain is using sugar. Cohen said the scan revealed several areas of Gaydon's brain not metabolizing sugar, which is one of the signs of Alzheimer's dementia. Cohen said other signs that Gaydon was suffering from this form of dementia included impulsivity, like his wild spending habits, as well as atypical sexual behavior excessive sexuality in somebody who wasn't like that before. What the heck happened to this respected and loved family doctor? 
What caused him to become the pill-prescribing monster who chased underage teens in a predatory fashion? The jury didn't buy it. Gaydon was found guilty of dispensing the narcotic oxycodone outside the usual course of professional practice and for no legitimate medical reason, and faced 20 years or so in federal prison. Cohen spoke again at sentencing as he and Gaydon's lawyer lobbied for a lenient sentence, as did Gaydon's daughter, Crystal Gaydon, who read the following letter. My name is Crystal Gaydon Lee, and I am John Gaydon's daughter. John Gaydon is a loving, devoted, and supportive father. He was an excellent provider while I was growing up, and he worked very hard as a doctor in his medical practice. Although he devoted a great deal of time to running his medical practice, he always made time to spend with his family. I would describe him as a hard-working family man who got along well with everyone. Every time my brother or I were ill, he was there to take care of us using his expert medical care. Even after I left home to pursue college and an independent life as an adult, I relied on him for his medical advice. As a physician, he genuinely cared for the well-being of his patients, showing compassion and individual attention to each patient. He possessed the knowledge and intelligence to successfully treat his patients and had their best interests at heart. I believe that he provided excellent medical care to his patients in a responsible way using medical best practices and ethics. Every time I visited his medical practice, I only heard kind words about my father from his staff and patients. He was very well liked in the Melbourne community. It is impossible for me to know exactly what happened to my father to result in his current situation. However, he experienced a traumatic event when my brother passed away at a young age. The loss of a child is very painful and can be difficult to handle. Our family life changed forever and could never be the same as before this incident. I believe this type of loss is a pain that never fully goes away and could continue to affect my father over the years. Your Honor, please consider his numerous years of good service to the community as a caring physician, as well as all of his positive aspects when taking into account his sentencing. To say that U.S. District Judge Carlos Mendoza was not impressed is an understatement and a half. Unfortunately, like I've said in the past, the case was not recorded, and so we have to rely solely on the transcript of what he said. I'm going to start this after the judge learned about the overdose deaths and how the state could not charge Gaydon with homicide. Quote, So he's not responsible for their death. He's not the whole reason for the problem. But how many times are we in this courtroom when defense attorneys are representing people who are addicts and they come in here and say the government is piling on? This person is an addict and he's trying to support his or her habit. That's why they're part of this conspiracy. That's why they're doing what they're doing, because they're an addict. And we shouldn't criminalize addiction. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, but there are a lot of people who would agree with the assertion that you don't criminalize addiction. And how many times do you have a frustrated person argue in the courtroom, if we could get to the person, the problem? We're treating the symptoms. Let's get to the problem. Well, Mr. Ryan and Mr. Chu, I am firmly convinced that we have the problem in front of us right now. I lose a lot of sleep and I go through a lot of stress in a lot of these cases trying to figure out what's the most appropriate and fairest outcome in these disputes or these circumstances. And it should be stressful. But this is not one of the more difficult ones. I stand by my statement that I believe your client is a monster. But not just a monster, an arrogant monster. I don't want to be lectured by him anymore, 
and we're doing society a service by making sure there's absolutely no way he can ever do what he did again. This is not about deterrence. It's about all these people. Not that he killed, because that's not being alleged here. Stuart Fraser, Nicholas Giles, Lori Darling, Corianne Lundstrom, Frank DeLuca, Andrea Stewart, Michelle Jones, Stephanie Whitehouse, Paul Rosacci, and Luis Arguelles. Just some of the people who he profited off of. And I disagree with Dr. Cohen on one front. He seems to think it's not enough for him to engage in this activity. To live an extravagant lifestyle at some point and enjoy the fruits of this sort of conduct. Poisoning a community. And good riddance as far as I'm concerned. Wow, I have rarely heard a judge speak so harshly. John Gaydon was sentenced to 19 and a half years in prison. He will be 83 if and when he is released. Gaydon's lawyer on the earlier stated charges, Bryn Brito, said she believes that Gaydon was unfairly targeted. She said lots of other doctors were doing the same thing, which is true. I would have more respect for this if it was actually done statewide in a more even-handed yeah. prosecution, like or perhaps maybe, I don't know, let's go after the pharmaceuticals that created these drugs. But you want to kick John, Gay- John Gaydon while he's down and give him 235 months in prison, like, okay. He wasn't even a doctor anymore. So it's definitely a tragic story. I mean, there are people that hate John Gaydon that think he's the worst person on the earth. And, you know, listen, if you want to blame John Gaydon, I don't know, for somebody being a drug addict, I don't know. I mean, I, I certainly think that there's a lot of factors that go into people being drug addicts. Gaydon's former co-worker, Dr. Viscara, who we heard from in an earlier episode, said he felt nothing but pity for the man who used to be Dr. Gaydon. Before everything changed and he went down the road he did. I felt sorry for him. That's the only thing I can say. I felt sorry. He was a good guy. Like, I, mean, I don't know why, why uh, he changed so much, really, to become like that. I knew that his father was uh, very respectful um, in internees in town. One of the first one on Melbourne. And I felt sorry that he didn't follow his father's steps. I asked Deborah Lavelle, who nearly lost her son to an overdose, if Gaydon is where he belongs. Absolutely. Absolutely. He ruined a lot of lives and he killed a lot of people. FDLE agent Jason Kriegsman agrees that Gaydon's punishment came nowhere close to the pain that he inflicted on an entire community. Yeah, he's pretty much spending the rest of his life in prison um, based, you know, on his age. And I think that's where he deserves to be because as you're doing a story, the fallout, you know, didn't end when it stopped. You know, you still have hundreds and thousands, probably people addicted because of him and him supplying all those. And who knows, you know, we know that there's definitely deaths attributed to him. But the problem is when, you know, you have multi-tox deaths, what we call, when, you know, someone dies from, they'll have uh, oxycodone, cocaine, and all that. It's hard to prove, but we know he caused deaths. We know, um, who, we don't know, we can't say how many suicides were committed based on people who were hooked, so. John Gaydon's monstrous legacy is being washed away slowly as the neighborhood rebounds from years of pill peddling. There are still addicts in the area. And there are still homeless people that sometimes panhandle in front of that Sunoco right near where Gaydon's office was. 
There are still some rundown homes, heroin dens, flop houses, but it's getting better, a lot better. The neighborhoods in the area are making a comeback. Here is Indy Atlantic Police Chief Mike Connor. Uh, when he was sentenced to, to federal prison, um, it, it was almost like a sigh of relief in the whole community, and, and things began to dramatically improve. Um, just the, the, the posture of the community was better, especially up in the northern northern end of, uh, of my town. You could just kind of see houses started getting fixed up. Uh, we get, you know, working families are starting to come back into the area instead of these flop houses with six or seven or eight people living in it. Um, yeah, it, it, quality of life improved dramatically when, when he went away. New laws have made it difficult for crooked doctors to overprescribe and cash in on people's misery like Gaiden did. But with the decline in pill mills comes the rise of heroin again and even worse, fentanyl. Most police officers these days carry something called Narcan, which can revive an overdose victim if administered within a certain time frame of the overdose. Unfortunately, I'm told that police have had to use the Narcan way more than they expected to. Sheriff Ivey even said that his deputy used Narcan three different times at the same address in Port St. John. The war is never over and the battlefields simply shift from one drug, one location to another. I'll leave you with neighborhood resident... Tyler Kelsey talking about John Gaden's legacy. He, he turned a affordable paradise into a crime scene. He turned functioning, thriving, classic American families into families that were weeping the deaths of their children. You know, he, he turned beautiful 1950, 1960 block vintage Florida some Spanish-style homes into run-down, beat-up, hole-in-the-wall heroin dens. He turned little innocent kids, middle school kids, into drug addicts who would be fighting a battle for the rest of their life, you know? He turned our pristine white sand beaches into beaches that contained bodies and homeless people and heroin needles and a lot of dangers that can endanger a child who's just running on the beach playing with playing in the sand he he uprooted the barrier island and from afar every everything looks quaint looks quiet looks perfect for the most part it is but every now and then you have these big old spurts of crime like uh, the shootings down behind the mobile and it seemed for a while there that every year there was some big big story some big murder some big huge drug bust that is not typical for a community that is only two miles long and full of 400 to million dollar houses 400,000 million dollar houses but that just goes to show you that crime manipulation addiction can can take over any community whether it's university boulevard or or it's freaking hollywood malibu you know i'm john torres thanks for listening to season six of murder on the space coast monster on the beach for more information on these cases and web exclusives please go to floridatoday.com murder on the space coast is written and narrated by me john a torres the producer is Rob Landers, and the editor is Mara Bellaby. Thanks for listening to Monster on the Beach, a Murder on the Space Coast podcast, 
Brought to you by Florida Today, a part of the USA Today Network. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.